Difference makers all face the same question. How can we initiate, drive and sustain change in any of its forms, whether it be social change, behaviour change, policy change or, at its most challenging, system change? Massive Small Stories presents lessons from all over the world, amplifying how amazing people have done amazing things throughout their careers. It celebrates those who have overcome all odds by pursuing their purpose in life and have influenced change for all of us. These are our massive small agents of change. Hello, my name is Richard Ingleton. Welcome to Massive Small Stories, the first two episodes of which I'm going to introduce the two founders, inventors of this uh, podcast series. The first, though, and one of my particular friends, is Mr. Kelvin Campbell, who I think it's fair to say is a seasoned contrarian. So I look forward to introducing and chatting to Kelvin. Kelvin, welcome. Hi, Richard, and thanks for doing this. I think it worked out well. You're welcome. We'll see how it goes. And obviously the idea of the series is to talk about change and the pitfalls and opportunities that come with that. And we're going to start with your story, Kelvin. So why don't we dive straight in and you tell me how did this all start for you? I think it all started when I was going to be a vet. A vet? A vet. That's how it all started. I, was going to be I a know vet. you, Kelvin. I can't imagine you as a vet. But And, and I, was, I was quite diligent. At, and you know, if you talk about career guidance, you know, my parents would never have thought that I would have done anything else other than veterinary. Yeah. I registered as a veterinary student. And in between the time I registered and the time I started the, the veterinary course, I read a book called The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. I don't know if you must know that. I do. She wrote Atlas Shrugged as well, I think. That's right, yeah. It was one of these books where I think when you're at that stage of your life and you're influenced by so many things, I mean, this book really got to me. It was about an architect who changed the world through design, through his own self-driven belief that he believed he was right. And, and, and I was just taken by it. That was the, that was the start of my change so first thing you must have noticed the the flaw in the system is I get influenced quite easily. And did it end well for that architect? No, it didn't. I, I, I can't remember. In fact, I, I reread it recently and, and realised that firstly Ayn Rand wasn't what she turned out to be and uh, Howard Rourke, who was the architect, wasn't a particularly nice guy. Yeah. But uh, I think it was more about this idea of sticking to your principles and I think that was the thing that, that sort of was embedded in me is that you... You stuck by your principles and what you did, and you, if you believed it was right, you just pushed it as hard as you could. And so was architecture just a, a theme within which you could make change, or was there something about architecture in particular that drew you in? Well, I think the, the book was about an architect who changed the world through his own sort of self-belief, and that's what I kind of was hooked into. And of course, I studied architecture, and I realised within my first year, I found it a bit silly. I found people talking about abstract things, where I was a pretty much a bricks-and-mortar kind of guy. Um, people talking about lines in space, and I just really didn't understand what they were talking about all the time. And I remember we were we were all asked to come in and talk about ourselves, which I found incredibly difficult. Um, and if people were coming in and you know recording or uh, talking about abstract things, and I walked in with a brick, and I said, actually, this is all it comes down to. It comes down to this brick and how we put the one brick next to another brick, and how that brick makes a wall, and how that wall makes a room, and how that room makes a house, and that house makes a street, and and it all starts from this brick. So that's why I understood architecture to be, is how you put one brick next to another and you made something. 
And did you ever learn why lines and spaces were important or is that... No, I just wasn't interested. I wasn't interested at all. And fortunately at the time, you could have alternative agendas. We had an oil crisis at the time when I was at university. So everyone was talking about alternative technology. So you could put a methane digester on anything you designed and everyone thought you were clever. It's a bit like what's happening today. You know, you know, there's a, there was a very strong political movement towards being alternative. And I got caught up in that and, and believed that was a, a different way of doing things. So I embraced that side of it. And fortunately, that kind of got me through architecture. But I always had my doubts about whether I would be an architect and qualify as an architect. And did you qualify as an architect? Did you become I, an architect? I qualified as an architect, but fairly rapidly stopped being an architect. I, I, th I thought more about urbanism. I thought more about bigger things, sort of city planning. And I got involved in informal settlements. That was my first sort of foray into housing. And I started doing informal housing research. And, and through that process, got to understand the complexities of how places change and how people's individual efforts. And I think that time had such a strong influence in my life, and it's come full circle. I mean, it's almost like I remember now why places changed and how, pla how people's individual efforts went in to make those places change and how bad architects were at making those, those kind of places. So that was my, my first sort of recognition that, that if you were starting from a particular perspective of change, it had to start with this idea that you start at the very bottom up. And that's what I've, I've I embraced probably throughout my career. And people may have detected a hint of a South African accent, but you've been in the UK for a long time. Was there something, did this happen in South Africa? Was there something it started, about South I, Africa? I, I was, uh, you know, it started there. I, I was educated there. I was educated with parents of Scottish descent. So I kind of grew up as an expat Brit. That's probably the best way of describing me. If people often challenge me today to say, who do I support at rugby? I come back with the famous Norman, Te Norman Tebbit test. You know, I'm fully integrated into UK culture. I support Pakistan now. <laughs> so, so that's the way I kind of look at it. But I think I, was, I, was, I saw myself culturally British. I think that was the kind of way. I didn't see myself necessarily Scottish or Irish, where my, my grandparents uh, came from. But I saw myself as British. And I always saw London as the kind of place you came to if you really wanted to make that difference. You know, living in the colonies at the time, you know, which it was, London was seen as the mothership. You know, that's where all the information came from, the knowledge came from. And that's where if you wanted to make things, you had to come to London. And there was always that drive to come across and do something like this. Yeah. So you went from animals to Ayn Rand to architecture to urbanism to the UK. As you went through this process, did you start to identify a problem you wanted to solve? Was there something in particular that was in your mind when you talked about this yeah, sort of I think world the you were in? The problems, problems I saw emerged quite soon after qualifying. And um, I worked for a social change organisation called Urban Foundation, which was set up after the Soweto riots. And I went in and worked in the community for a while. Do you want to just give some context around the Soweto riots? What were uh, they Soweto riots happened in Soweto riots happened in 1976. It was basically a reaction of, small ch of young school children to the system where young kids went out. What, what might have been radical change at the time would have been older people, but this all of a sudden changed. The game plan changed to younger people saying, we don't want this kind of education anymore. And schools were burnt and a lot of kids fled the country. And that was the first major trouble. The first time I identified that major troubling point in, in South African culture because we all grew up in a slightly different way. It was a, it wasn't, uh, you weren't aware of the issues in, in many ways, but you became very aware of them when you, when you got to university. And uh, so I was, uh, at that time, the Soweto riots happened. I was, I was traveling in South America. 
I'd been given a bursary to study informal settlements in South America and went on to the Habitat Conference in Vancouver, which was a sort of a big jamboree of thinking at the time about urban issues. And when I came back to London, which would have been about June the 16th, that's when the riots happened. So I went back to South Africa recognising that that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to go and work in those sort of areas. And that was my sort of challenge at the time. And I think um, I probably was brought up with um, a kind of uh, a belief coming from my father, largely, who was a very fair kind of character about uh, equality. You know, so equality for me was a fundamental thing. And um, so I, um, I came and I started working for the Urban Foundation, which was set up post-Soweto uh, riots to, to work in, in the townships, as they're called, in, in, in South Africa. And, and what was the mission for the Urban Foundation? Was it to solve the problem in Soweto alone or more broadly? No, it was broadly. It was throughout the country. But, of course, Soweto was the prime focus. It was the hotbed of, of radicalism at the time. And it is where most of the change happened. Most of the personalities were probably based in, in uh, Soweto. So I started working with Cyril Ramaphosa's wife, Hope Ramaphosa, who was my social worker, who I worked together with on, in, in uh, Soweto, and then with Willie Mandela for a while. And until she was put under house arrest, of course. But I think I kind of realised at, at that time, it, the, the Urban Foundation was a, a business organisation. So it was the main big businesses who set up to facilitate social change. So it was largely a sugar-coated pill type organisation. I don't think it was ever going to solve the problems, but it was, it was presenting a face that big business was concerned about, about social change. And we, we've referenced the problem a couple of times. Do you care to define it? Sort of in a, in a, a sentence or a couple of sentences, what what what's the specific problem that you were looking to solve at this early stage in your career? At the time, it was how do you scale up small change? So how do you really understand that innate ability that people have to make changes themselves, and how do you take that change and how do you scale it up to make a big difference in the face of governments who really want to command and control every outcome? They want to put a policy on everything. They want to control how people do things. And, you know, in the UK, that control is probably 10 times worse than it, it was when I grew up because you were given, still given a fair amount of free reign. So as a, as a young person, I, after leaving the, the, the Urban Foundation, I joined the city council in Cape Town to work on housing projects. And you were given an enormous amount of responsibility when you were quite young. So you were thrown in the deep end and you learned pretty damn quickly. And that was one of the unique things that happened in growing up in South Africa is how quickly you were able to address, address massive problems and how much responsibility you were given to, to deal with it. Yes, yeah, so, so, so again, when you, when you say you've, you've, you've referenced urban settlements and settlements, you've referenced riots, you've referenced communities. So is this about how do I make a settlement work? How do I make a community work? How do I make politics work? What, what, what is it specifically that you're trying to make work? I think in those days it was more about how do I make how do I make myself relevant in a system where you effectively a white liberal working in a place that's highly politicised, wanting change, and how do you, how are you effective at doing it? And I realised I didn't have enough experience to offer to to those people. I'd, I'd worked in, in, in informal settlements. I worked in Cape Town on the crossroads, a squatter settlement. But I never, I never felt that I was fully in charge. I hadn't learnt my craft or my profession well enough to... To, to, to do you know to effectively be to be effective so and that was part of the reason why I left because I wanted to go and get experience to come back eventually that was probably my thinking that is to go back and learn so I left for the UK 
1986, and I had spent a bit of time there previously, or here previously, and I came across and I wanted to work on World Bank projects, but of course I had the wrong passport and th- those jobs weren't freely available. So I went into social housing. That was my sort of my, my main interest. I had to come over here, requalify, and I came into a much more formal system, which I found incredibly daunting, incredibly challenging, and still challenged today. And and I suppose maybe to reverse the cliche, you were looking for a big picture, but at this point you'd seen lots of, lots of snippets. It was like a, an incomplete jigsaw puzzle for you, was it? Is that what you were trying to build out? Is that actually can I? Can I define the whole thing? What's the big picture yeah. that... Well, the, the easiest way of me talking about it was when I, went, when I worked in South America, we arrived just before Easter weekend. Or sorry, I beg your pardon, it was just after Easter weekend. And over that Easter weekend was one of the biggest informal squats. They called them spontaneous settlements in, in, uh, in Lima. I was working in Lima and Peru. And so 10,000 people squatted overnight or over a weekend. It generally happened over a weekend because... Uh, and if 10,000 people did it, then... The government couldn't move them, move them. So it was incredibly well organised and people squatted would run out. Where? Where? They, they, they squatted on a disused airfield, which was a government, government-owned airfield. And at that time, I'd gone across to work on a, on a low-income housing scheme called Previ, which was... So Previ was launched because in 1974, there was a major earthquake in, in, in Lima. And they got some of the best architects in the world, you know, people like Charles Career or Jim Sterling or Christopher Alexander. These, these are big names for me. You know, they were like in, you know, in, in the headlights, their names. And I went and worked on one of the projects there. And I worked with a Charles Career, who was an Indian architect. And, but I always remembered what, I remember that squat that happened at, over that long weekend. Well, if you go back and look at that area now, that area is completely transitioned to a normal piece of city. It's called Los Olivos. And so I always wanted to understand how did it move from informality to formality over one generation, which is effectively what happened. And so, uh, so just to be clear, the squatters weren't moved out. No, it was weren't. those people that have yeah. developed it into what it became. What it became, yeah. So what would have started as um, fairly ramshackle buildings made out of um, woven bamboo and black plastic and uh, a bit of corrugated iron. Um, transitioned over a period of 30 years to be this piece of city that if you went into, you would never realise that it was that it started that way. But actually, that's, where, that's how most cities started. So it was strange for us because I think we were, we were brought up in this sort of social utopian vision about you need a plan, you need this big vision, you need this thing. And all of a sudden, this wasn't. This was about an organised movement that settled in this place. And and it was organised, of course. Uh, people would run out with a grid of ropes and peg out plots, and people would then go and build their houses on these plots. And and uh, so, the, so the the question that came from me is, what was the initial? What was the small beginning that gave rise to this place changing? And I think it was this idea that someone overlaid a structure in this place, which was this grid of ropes, or which was then pegged and then settled. And why was it so different in Africa? Why do African informal settlements never transition? And I think I've some, some, you know, since come to realize that actually Africa, sub-Sahara, had no urban tradition. Most people were itinerant farmers uh, and would move to where uh, the next grazing areas were and would build huts and those huts would return back to earth. And there, wasn't, there weren't cities. There wasn't a, a tradition. There was one city, I think, up in Nigeria. It was right on the edge of the Saharan uh, desert. But anything south of that was, there wasn't a tradition. 
There was a Western tradition that came in through the colonies, through the Portuguese and the Germans and the British, the Dutch, but there wasn't this tradition that existed in, in African settlements. So that was the thing that sort of piqued my, my interest, is so how do you move from, from informality to formality? And that's what, that's what I've been doing recently. So, 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 so you get to this stage then where you've, you've observed this or you've studied this informal settlement become formal and you've studied how other settlements... And I guess if you go back into early history of cities, so maybe four, three, four thousand years ago, when cities, were they built with a plan? You've mentioned this word, you know, when did the plan start or when did we become driven by the need for a plan as opposed to allow evolution? Well, the oldest planned city, I believe, is Damascus. So, and that goes back to over 300 generations ago. Um, I'm talking about the past three generations where our plan has been driven by some sort of social utopian vision where previously it was driven by people's needs, the technology, what was available in terms of materials, uh, what was the social unit of the place, how did it form, how did it, how did it respond to people's needs. Whereas we've been involved in telling people what we think they want. So in other words, we plan a place and generally it ends up as an estate of some sort, a housing estate. And I've often said that the difference between a, an estate and a neighbourhood is that an estate is the individual expression of collective needs. In other words, it's one hand that tells you what we're going to give you. It's your, we're going to solve your living problems or whatever it is, your social problems in this particular way. Compared to a neighbourhood, which is the collective expression, there's lots of people coming together to express individual needs. So it's, it's an antithesis. So, And for three generations, we haven't built a new neighbourhood anywhere in the world. Okay? And I think you might say they might have built some suburban neighbourhoods. There might be examples, say, in Holland, Germany, some places like that where there's fairly good areas, but they still become estates quite quickly. They're still about the single hand. So do you, see, do you see the neighbourhood as something that evolves through the participation and will of its citizens and a... Uh, an estate, for want of a better word, is something that is planned by a single central authority that thinks they know best. Is that is that how you absolutely? Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the neighborhood is neighborhood for me is like the word family. You know, a family is the social unit of of your close family, but the neighborhood is your is the is the family unit of the of the place. You know, it's, it's a social unit, and it's made up out of people's needs. You know, and it responds over time, and it, it it changes. It responds to those changes, and it's highly resilient. And some of our best neighbourhoods have been places that have changed quite well over time. The Williamsburgs in New York, or say the Shoreditches, or places like that, that people look at and say, oh, "These are really great. We really like them." But they've actually been places that have easily adapted to people's people's needs over time. So, if I'm sitting listening to this, and I'm in a English village, or a French town, or an American city. I could see neighbourhoods because of the way they've evolved, could I? So the, 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 the neighbourhoods have evolved out of, you know, a collective will to have a village, to have a town, to have a city, or as opposed to something that's planned. So, so, so how, would, how do I know I'm in a neighbourhood versus I'm on an estate? Using those two words, how would I know? I think, I, think you'd, I think you'd notice it pretty damn quickly. I think, you know, a lot of my experience in the past 20, 30 years has been about working in council housing estates, regenerating council housing estates. So these are things that were built, say, two or three generations ago, and we've demolished many of them. Yet we haven't demolished those old fantastic neighbourhoods. We've actually regenerated them. We've kept elements of them. We, we value the past and we put new things. And it's when the new and old continually evolve over time 
to individual needs that, that these places are, are successful. And unpredictable things happen. You know, that's the difference between the single hand, the single vision for a place, which only came about post-war. And it, it came about for very good reasons. And it was it's to do with post-war reconstruction. So imagine Europe in tatters, returning GIs in the States, people going back to the Australias or the, or the South Africas or the Canadas to go back to go and settle. And politicians looking for this big vision. And the big vision that was around was the modern city movement. And the other was the garden city movement, the garden city movement that spawned suburbia yeah, and made suburbia so perfect. So a lot of people would have taken suburbia, uh, sort of taken the garden city mo- movement and, and evolved it into modern suburbia as we know today. And the modern city movement had to do with the big downtown, you know, the, big, the big buildings, the sort of the classic things that happen in most major cities of the world. And, and there were, you know, the, 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 the politicians embraced those, those two, two theories at the time, which were very provocative, very powerful. They promised brave new world. They promised a kind of new frontier. And you got seduced by it. You got seduced by these big visions. And as I said, most of them are in the process of either being demolished or have been demolished already for a variety of different reasons. And so I looked at them saying, how do you go back to, how do you go back to government with a light touch? So this is not about government get out the way and don't, don't do housing or don't do these things. But how does government rather become the enabling enabler of, of neighbourhoods? Yeah, so and you, what does it need to do to become the enabler of, uh, the enabler of neighbourhoods? So you, you've made these observations, these things we can all see happening around us. What, how did you come to do something about it? What was your action then? So I ran a consultancy, an urban design consultancy, for over 20 years. And we were very successful. And, and I loved doing it. We had uh, a fantastic bunch of people working there. And we were probably at the forefront for a long time of, of change. You know, we, we were constantly doing some of the best projects. We were constantly winning awards. We were doing all the things that you wanted to do. But I always felt that we weren't making a difference. We were just playing the game. You know, we were playing the game of classically in business. And, and, and what I've often said is that if you're in the system, it's very difficult to change the system. So I had the possibility in after the Olympics, 2012, where we'd been involved in uh, probably one of the biggest projects in our experience, looking at the whole of Stratford, and realised that I wanted to do something different. I wanted to go and do a bit more research, a bit more writing, a bit more being outside the tent than inside the tent and being critical of that. So I started to blog a lot, started to write a lot, research a lot. And through that process, I started developing what we call Mass of Small Theory, which is really quite simple. It's really about how you get back to evolutionary type processes rather than social utopian processes that we were, we were schooled in and what people expected us to do when we, we were commissioned to do a plan for an area, you know, give us this vision of a place for the next 25 years, tell us how we do it. You know. And I knew full well that as I lifted my pen from paper, it would be out of date already. So this idea of projecting a vision, commanding and controlling this complex thing, uh, was, was just not going to work. So I had to find a different way of, of, of looking and talking about it. And I was taken by a lot of business, business writers and business leaders, and I, I learned a lot from the people like the D. Hawks and, and the Peter Senge's of the world. And Peter Senge is a system scientist and a business writer, a business thinker, who spoke about seeing cities much more as organisms or as, and therefore seeing yourself not as mechanics of a system but rather as gardeners of a system 
So your job is much more about setting up the preconditions that enables growth to happen rather than predetermining exactly what that growth should be. What should go where and who should put it there? You allow the... Yeah, I think you allow... I mean, you still need to plan. You still need, you still need structure. You still need all those things because a lot of things need structure. Where does your rail go? How do you, how do you relate to the harbour front? You know, things like that. It still requires planning. But it doesn't require that projection to what the end state would be. And I kind of realised that what it came down to is what were the small beginnings that you could then take and then scale up and, and scale up more and more. So we started developing a, a, a term called radical incrementalism. And it was to try and develop this conflict between radical change, which was everyone would say, we need to you know, burn the house down, we need to start again, we need to, you know, new broom sweeps clean, let's start, and realizing it would never happen, to the incrementalists who'd say, we just want small change, lots of small change. So and I realized that you could, you could comfortably put those two words together. You could radically change through many incremental actions so if you scale up small change and of course small change is the best way in which you're going to learn it's the way you can do it the quickest it's a way that um, if you fail it's not a big failure and it it could start can you give me an example of a, a small change that led to a more massive consequence in one of the communities you worked in one of the projects i worked on which i thought was fascinating was was a project in india which was where we were asked to sponsor a competition with amongst 200 universities in Southeast Asia who were studying, people who were studying planning, architecture and engineering. And we were asked to sort of publicise it and try and get the structure right. And the idea was that we would offer some students in these places the ability to come and study in London, some postgraduate course in London. And it started with a competition, an ideas competition, which was give us some ideas about how you might change a place, you know, some place in your town, in your neighbourhood. And those kids went and built the damn projects. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be, it was supposed to be an ideas competition, but they got so caught up in it that they started building it. And the first year they probably built about 100 public spaces. And it was incredible. Some of the things they did were absolutely, they just did it despite government. They just went in, they worked with their community and they changed places. And then the following year, I think it went up to about 150. And by the time we stopped the sponsorship, it went up to 379. I remember the last figure. So this idea of scaling up change. But more importantly, it gave students the ability to meet clients, meet real people, which I never did when I studied architecture. It was You were kept away from a client because you were mm. dangerous. You know? So these people understood community. They understood those sorts of things. And I, I found that an incredibly good example of, scale, of scalability. And the... What's happened now is it's now a compulsory course in each of the universities. In their third year, every student must work on this on these kinds so of projects. So they'll find a space or a problem. Find a space, work on a problem. They, they, they go and find the problem, they go and work on it, and they do it. And So it's unsponsored, and it's just be taken over. It's just, it's just run. It's just run from it. So if you think about applying this approach in the UK, in India, in South Africa, in the US, when, you, when, you've, when you've come to apply this type of approach, which... Seems very sensible to me. I'm yeah. not a planner, so I, you know I don't know. But it seems very sensible. To start with something small and learn from it, and do something else more, and learn from it. Connect the two together, and eventually something evolves. What resistance do you meet as you go through this process? I think every day, small change projects are happening. Okay, someone's reclaiming a street. Someone's building a shack and an informal settlement. Someone's looking for temporary use of a building. Someone's looking to try and get new products and services sold into low-income communities they're doing these things all the time 
and it's innate. We don't need to teach people how to do these things. They do it. They learn. The problem is that the top-down systems stifle it quite quickly. Or you can't do that. It's health and safety risk. Or you can't do that. It's against the policy. Or you can't do that. You know, someone might not like it. Yet, that's how innovation happens. So, in fact, the system, the top-down system we have, is absolutely killing innovation. So we have a permanent housing crisis here in the UK, but it's a permanent housing crisis in many countries that are using the same top-down planning system. Okay, this idea of command and control every outcome. So for someone who traditionally would have just made a change to their property or built something new, and it would have added to that neighborhood and added to that community, is now just a massive battle. Mm. So for me, the, the, the resistance to change generally comes from our top-down systems, our top-down policies, which have prevented things happening. In other words, a top-down policy will say, you do it our way or else. Otherwise, we will enforce, we will control, we will, you know, we will do anything to make it happen in our way. Perhaps we've become conditioned to this, but I think there'll be people who are listening and thinking, well, health and safety is there for a reason because we don't want people to slip on pavements and fall into the road. Or, you know, I quite like the idea of extending or doing something to my house, but I don't really want my neighbour to do it because that might spoil my view or, you know. So, 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 and I think we probably have, you know, all become conditioned to the idea that, you know, we have to ask permission to do something because it's the law. And if we break yes. the law, there could be consequences or costs or whatever. Yeah. So, so... I definitely hear what you're saying, but there's value in some of those things. Are, are you saying it's swung to, you know, we've become too obsessed about the reasons not to do something and there isn't any freedom or is, is there a sort of balance you see? I think, I think all of this is about balance. The two most dangerous words in the, health, is in, in the English language are health and safety because they're the reason that you prevent things happening. There's a wonderful book um, written by Philip Howard, called The Death of Common Sense, which talks about how health and safety legislation goes completely overboard and how we're so obsessed with auditing and so obsessed with approvals processes that we lose sight of the thing we're trying to do. And I think he, he said in the States at the time, one-third of the capital costs of most projects are spent in procurement. Wow. So one-third goes into it. So the question is, you know, why do these projects overrun? And why do they say they, they damn expensive? So, I mean, to, to, to answer your question, in a, in a, a well-developed community, you have respect for your neighbour, okay? You have respect for your neighbour, and therefore you will consult with your neighbour through the process of doing things. So the, the process is about self-organisation in your community, and the process is about negotiating about how things would change. If you are bound by a set of rules, which is you have to follow these in a particular way, you don't create that negotiation. You don't create that interface between green communities. So, classically, in a in a in a um, in a neighbourhood, a suburban neighbourhood, your negotiation with your neighbour is through your building lines and your setbacks. You know that's what it is. So you don't have to talk to your neighbour. You can spend your entire life living in your house and never having to engage with your community. Mm. Whereas in an urban society, that's one of the key conditions. Where you're living in proximity, there's an interface between you, and particularly when you're doing it yourself, you have to negotiate. So if you look at say an informal settlement in, say, Caracas in Venezuela, where people are almost building on top of one another, you have to be negotiating, you have to be mm. talking about shared walls and have all these sorts of things. And therefore, it ceases to become a problem if you, if you respect your neighbour. So it's, it's, you know, it's almost like it's a similar thing I have on bicycle lanes in London. You know, I think they're the worst things possible because they just create a conflict point when they stop. Mm. Whereas all someone needed to say was respect a cyclist or respect a pedestrian. You know, just have that system. 
it doesn't require it doesn't require a line drawn on the road to define how you treat a cyclist. It requires a, a mindset about how you do it. So, so, so you've had these ideas about the way settlements should develop for a little while now. These are these are very mature ideas. It's something you've been thinking about yeah. for many many years. Um, and obviously, we still have these blockers in place. So, if I'm trying to get something out of this, you know, where would you say actually? if there is a law or a health and safety regulation that is a blocker, shall I just ignore it and go around it? Um, how, how, do you, how have you sort of overcome these inevitable points of resistance? Well, there's one group of thinking that says you get on and do it despite government rather than because of government, and you argue about it later. And there's a lot of it. We call that guerrilla urbanism. Guerrilla urbanism. And, and people are, you know, there's protagonists who, who talk about this and it's, it's there. Reclaim the streets in Berlin. It's classically people who just say we're going to do it. You know, we're going to do it despite government. I think there's another there's another school of thinking which says that you know you can try and change the system. You know, and that's incredibly difficult to do. System change is almost impossible to do in the face of being outside your main support structure. So, you know, in my particular instance, I would have stepped outside professionalism to do research, and therefore you're out of the system. And therefore, you become a lone voice in, the, mm. in this, and that's the that's the whole problem that starts when you you lose your support network. So all you can do is um, you know you can moan about it, argue about it, but I think for me the best thing is to show how it could happen. You, know, you can actually, as I've I've always said, this isn't about a critique on what's happening. This is about saying there is an alternative and is a way of doing it, and that, and that outcome would be better if we tried something this way. So uh, you know I'm mindful of left and right politics that are. Others are, the, are the same sides of the coin as far as I'm concerned, because both of them believe in big solutions. You know, this idea of a big social housing project or a big private development, or you know, bigness tends to be part of that sort of, whole sort of game. Particularly when you say we are short of a million houses, you know, it's easy to say we need a million houses. Then you develop a system that sorts the million houses, rather than saying, like the Victorians did, let's just focus on six houses and another six and another six and another six. Then all of a sudden you realise, oh, but forty thousand, I wasn't even counting. And which is what I'm talking about, much more evolutionary type processes. And you can put in place the preconditions for that change to happen. You don't require major top-down influence. I mean, we would probably be aware, if someone wants to stick 400 houses on the outskirts of our little village here, we'd be up in arms, wouldn't we? You know, that's, that's yeah, probably, but it's, it's reminded me of when, we, when I first met you, we were talking about this sort of million, pound, million houses problem. Yeah. And, and and then you said, well, you know, why wouldn't you just find a piece of land that can accommodate 10 houses, create 10 plots, and allow people to buy the plot and build whatever they want? Which you do see happening a little bit in places in the UK now, but also in Holland and Germany and other yeah. European countries. So that, yeah. that, and it doesn't require a big developer and no, acres doesn't. and acres of land, a massive disruption to a local community. It is just a little bit of an evolution within yeah. the community boundaries. I think, I think the problem with many of those is they tend to be the exceptions to the rule. In other words, let's try it for a while, you know, mm. rather than saying, actually, that's how we evolved for 300 generations. Mm. Now, history showed that we could produce the most beautiful cities and the most beautiful neighbourhoods. And yet we haven't done it for the past three generations. There must be something wrong with the system. So, uh, you know, the, the thing is that when you, when you develop a system which is based on command and control, uh, command through policy and control through development planning, through development control afterwards, once you develop that, it's very difficult to move away from a decentralized system which says, well, let's allow much more free reign to happen at, at local level. Because all you do then is you say, well, okay, we need a neighborhood plan. 
which is another command and control model. Someone's trying to tell you what to do. Whereas actually what you want to do is want to say, look, I'm a plumber. I want to start my business. I want to have a house. I want to have a plumbing workshop underneath me. Yeah, that's classically how most places evolved over time. You know, they're class, they were because of the need of living and the need of working. Mm. And there might have been other needs, which have been social needs or shopping needs or other things. But most people came into these neighborhoods wanting to do something. A lot of people just want to go and live. You know, this is, this is a, a perspective that most neighborhoods comprise of most normal things. But a really successful neighborhood comprises of this rich mix of things. Mm. I think it's very interesting if you think of any great city, and we all, we all live within an hour of one. You know, there are yeah. lots around the world. And yes, they may have their problems, but when you think about the volume of people that live in them and engage in them and enjoy them, it's incredible. And these cities have developed over, as you said, over thousands of years in, in many instances and over hundreds of years in, in most. Yeah. And it's interesting when you frame it as the last few decades, you think these cities, yes, they've had their problems and they've had to have changed, but they have always evolved. Yeah. Um, and then you reframe it as this sort of last, last few decades of, well, let's have a big plan and let's put something over there and that's going to solve the problem. It is strange to challenge something that has actually worked not perfectly but yeah. has worked for hundreds of years and has evolved with technology and economies and economic growth for a system that we've tried for a few decades and we don't really have very many examples of where it has worked yeah. so when you think forward you know you think in 10 years time or let's give you three decades if you like where do you think we'll be when it comes to urbanism and urban settlements and how they develop do you think there'll just be more red tape or let, let, let me put it the way where do you think we'll be and where would you wish we would be i think if you if you try and reconcile the, the conflicts and realize the potentials that exist between top down and bottom up if you recognize that there are potentials that exist but there are major conflicts that exist between the two and i've often said why would government not want people to solve some of the wicked problems that they have today? Because they're not solving, governments are not solving these problems themselves. Mm. As I said, there isn't a single country in the world. I, at one point, I thought maybe even Australia was solving the problems, but they're not. If you read the stuff that's happening around their housing issues, a lot of these countries are not solving the basic needs of people. And, and, and what I'm saying is that I think there's a recognition in, in some parts of the world that our top-down systems can't, solve the problems and therefore we need to change but it's very difficult to clear out the cobwebs these things take a bit longer in political terms it takes too long for that change to happen i'll give you one example i worked in ealing in west london and ealing the bbc had a program about ten thousand illegal beds and sheds in backyards okay so this is one part of one borough in West London, the richer part of, of, um, of London, that had people living in informal shacks, unserviced, unfit shacks in backyards. Okay. Now, when 10,000 people do it, that's massive. That's a massive change. And um, it's very difficult to imagine how you might enforce it. So when I was working on this project, I was also writing um, Boris's housing design guide. So he said, let's go walk about and have a look. And he said to me, wow, this is, I can't believe it can't believe how many of these things are happening here. And what do you do about it? And I said, legalize it. Okay, and give it technical support and move these things from being informal, unserviced backyard shacks into places that are habitable. Because 
if you put together the 10,000 with Ealing with another 10,000 in Hounslow, another 10,000 in Feltham, another 10,000 in Slough, that's 40,000. You only have to build 40,000 houses a year. That's what the London requirement is. And these people are doing it without your help. So, in other words, they, they're evolving. That's, this, is, this is cities in progress. You, know, they might, you, might, you might be you know, disillusioned when you see the quality of these places, but actually people were spending money. And how do you just make those places change over time? And he basically said, that's too big an issue for us to deal with. We'll never deal with this within, within my, my lifespan of my... So in other words, it was, it was too, bit, too difficult and therefore he wasn't going to do it. So what happened? They left it. And the solution is send in the fire brigade, send in the um, health department. The same as you manage an informal settlement in Nairobi or in Caracas or anywhere else in the world. Okay, that's how we're managing in London. So which is supposed to be the most sophisticated planning system in the world, most well-resourced planning system in the world. We're still managing it like, you know, Kibera in, in, in Nairobi or any other place. So let's say you're prime minister or president of any country and it's day one in office and you want to do something to return us to this evolutionary style of settlement development. What, what would be the first thing you'd do? I mean, a couple of examples on the ground would be the best way of showing positive change. I think we've lost our ability to think of buildings as typological solutions. In other words, the terraced house, the row house, the, the mansion block. Because we all, all we tend to do is we seem to build low-density, high-family housing and high-density, low-family housing. That seems to be the, the trick. So therefore, the idea of the family living in the city in you know, incredible neighbourhoods like the Stoke Newingtons or the Marleybones or things like that are just are not, not, a, not a reality. So, so for me, it would be to start around small projects and scale them up pretty damn quickly. I think you can put the preconditions in for these places to change and transform over time, but it requires a different mindset, certainly amongst the planning profession. And unfortunately, the planning profession has become a regulating profession now. They don't plan. They regulate. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. So I think it's changing hearts and minds. It's moving to much more ethical type of behaviours by professionals. I think we need to change the mindset of urban professionals to be more like doctors, where you have a Hippocratic oath. You know, I think there should be a, a Hippocratic oath for urbanists. I've written one. I just took the Hippocratic oath and changed the word humanity to urbanity. Mm-hmm. And you know, you need something like that. You need to know that you're working for something bigger than just a policy. Mm. You're working for something that's you know about humanity. So let's say you don't become prime minister and president of anywhere, any country in the world. So you can't do this. What 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 should I do or anybody else do if we kind of buy into this idea? What what might we do in our community, in our neighbourhood, if we have one, to make these changes to move along in this direction? I think the first thing is we have to engage with people locally. And I think the pandemic did a lot for us in engaging in the concept of community. I think the community genie was let out the bottle, I think, in the pandemic but I think we need to get our local democratic systems working a lot better. You know, if we're not engaging with people at the local level, you know, no wonder we're in chaos when it comes nationally. Mm. As we're not equipped with to deal with mutual support or mutual trust or mutual self-interest if we're not engaging with people. So I think for me it's, it's more about how do you get a network of people, like-minded people together, and how do you get that like-minded group of people to start with some form of change. And how do you build on that? How do you build on that success? And, you know, I think that for me is the easiest way of doing it. Mm. 
Uh, and I think all of us want to do it. I think all of us, the herd instinct in all of us is that we want to be part of a community. Yet the systems in place have prevented it from, from coalescing. In other words, it's too easy to say, it's not our problem, it's government's problem. You know, government's problem to look after the poor. It's government's problem to solve this particular issue. We pay our taxes. And I think we need to change that mindset. And it's only through that process, only through the process of, of democracy at the local level, will our democracy at the national level get better. Otherwise, we'll consistently put in idiots. You know, shit in, shit out is the famous expression. So we've got to prevent that happening. They're there because we put them there. Mm. Well, look, Kelvin, thank you very much for that. You've written a book on this topic, Kelvin Campbell, Massive Small. Um, so if people want to find out more about this or go into a little bit more detail, where would they go? Is there a... Amazon, you'll find it. You'll find it on the, on the website somewhere. It's available. I think it's, it's easily available. Very good, very good. Thanks, well, I've read it and I think it's excellent. So thank you very much, Kelvin. Thank you for your time. And we look forward to more stories like this from around the world. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thank you.